Welcome back to Are You For Real with Sarah Frick. Today, we are sitting down with Amanda Cunningham in Charleston, and on the phone, we have Sarah Simmons, who is in Florida. And we are speaking to these two wonderful women about her future coalition. And I'm going to let, um, I'm going to introduce Amanda and give us a little background on yourself, Amanda, and then we'll chat with Sarah and we'll just get this whole thing going. And Amanda, tell us um, a little bit about what her coalition is before we even introduce you guys. Okay. Her Future Coalition um, is a 15-year-old nonprofit, Sarah Simmons um, founded and is still the founder and, and CEO. Um, we rescue and rehabilitate women and children from trafficking, gender abuse, child marriage, any forms of, of um, slavery in India and Nepal. We highlight um, education. So it's kind of like you know, giving them the tools and the resources they need to break the cycle of um, poverty and um, you know, to ensure that when they come out of our programs, um, they feel independent, they can support themselves or their families or their children. Um, Sarah, do you have something to add to that? That was beautifully said. And I would just add that um, our focus is really on walking alongside people long-term, just, you know, from the moment of their rescue or prevent, if hopefully preventing them from being trafficked and walking alongside them the whole time, and it, sometimes it takes years, just until the point where they can truly stand on their own feet and be slavery-proof because they know their own rights and they have some resources um, for supporting themselves in the world. So, Sarah, will you give us um, a little bit of background about 15 years ago or whenever you started um, getting into this work, how this started? Because it is, I mean, it's uh, Amanda came over to my house uh, maybe a month or so ago because in, um, my hope is in February I'll be able to go with her to India and she sat at my dining room table with me and two other women and my husband and I mean we were all just in tears um, just with the information she was giving us and it just you know it's how did how did you get into something like this well it you're absolutely right it's just sort of devastating when you first hear about it right it's it's very hard to even understand or accept that this is happening in the world and, and on a, such a large scale. And for me, it was, it came to me very unexpectedly. Like I certainly wasn't setting out to start a nonprofit. I actually had another career as a songwriter for film and television. And um, in fact, mostly wrote songs for the love and death scenes of soap operas. Oh, wow. So it really was <laughs> completely taking a real a right turn, thing, right? <laughs> for sure. For sure. So I was actually, uh, I had a song in a feature film and I went down to the Tribeca Film Festival to see that song and that film. And while I was there, um, there, you know, were other movies at this film festival. And one of them was this documentary called The Day My God Died. And as you can tell from the title, you know, it's pretty upsetting and dark film, but it was, it was about human trafficking between Nepal and India and about, you know, these very young girls who were, were taken or sold by their families or community members and woke up in, you know, brothels in India um, where they just endured horrendous, horrendous um, torture and dehumanization and many don't, didn't survive. But what was amazing about this film is that it also profiled what people were doing to stop it. And these were people from all walks of life you know, not professionals necessarily, but people who just saw this happening and said, I have to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And some of them were the survivors themselves who, you know, after enduring this, this torture and this, you know, terrible experience of you know, seeing like 10, 20, 25 men a night mm. um, and just, you know, constant physical abuse and hunger. And, and the worst part is the shame. And the way, you know, shame is used to manipulate them. Yeah. Um, and at, even after experiencing all that and then coming out of that in many, many cases, they can never return home because they're blamed for what's done to them. And they face so much stigma, you know, from the rest of society, from their families, and sometimes from the very people who trafficked them. Mm -hmm. um, so they can't return home. Um, and even facing all that. And, and back then, you know, before there was the AIDS cocktail, a lot of girls were getting HIV AIDS and, and then they were dying without you know, any treatment or that any hope at all. Despite all of that, they were, many of them had become abolitionists and they were going back 
into the places where they themselves were enslaved and they were rescuing others, bringing the police, bringing rescue organizations. And they were the ones that knew how to do these rescues because they knew like the crazy, you know, ways that the brothel keepers would hide girls and, and, and the kind of psychological manipulations that would keep girls from wanting to be rescued because they think they've been told, you know, anyone that's going to rescue you is just going to abuse you worse or kill you. Mm. Um, And, why would they trust the police when the police are coming every night for free services, taking bribes, you know? So they've become, you know, so completely like terrified and brainwashed. And so the survivors were able to have this incredible role of gaining their trust and they knew all the secrets. So they were able to be very effective so in it, the rescue process. So and that inspired me to like do something as well. I'm sorry. No, no, you're great. You're great. I, I was just wanting to go back just because my knowledge is so minimal and just so I'm assuming the majority of our listeners are probably just kind of like me, just hear about it, think it's terrible, you know, uh, and then go back to the rest of their life, which I hate to even admit, but it's just kind of how I think life can be sometimes. So when you speak of these people that run the brothels, are these men, are these women, are these people, do these women make any money? Is it, is it anything like that? Or is it just full slavery? It's a variety of, it definitely varies from situation, you know, from place to place. Um, in the movie, in this movie that I saw, it was definitely, you know, full slavery. The girls were kept locked up, um, or chained to beds and they, they really had, you know, didn't make any money. Um, and then eventually as they got older, maybe could, could start to earn a small amount of money. And then eventually the only way for them to escape would be for them to become the trafficker. Um, Mm. the brothel keepers, it could be men or women, but there's definitely always women involved um, in the process because, you know, young girls aren't going to just trust some random man, mm-hmm. but they're more likely to trust a woman. And the women are often themselves were victims. And the only way that they could get out of it was to become a recruiter or, you know, madam or a brothel keeper or manager or whatever. So they just kind of become the next generation. And boys who were born into the red light areas without intervention, you know, they too would just become part of this incredibly destructive system. Um, so, and, and what you're saying is, is so true. Like you hear about something and you're like, I don't know what to do about it. And, you know, you might feel upset for a minute and then you don't know how to move forward. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, you know, seeing this film and hearing about this issue just struck me at such a deep and personal level. I was like, I, I got to just change my life and do something about this. I don't know what, I have absolutely no idea how, I lived on Cape Cod. I was like a mother of young kids and I was a songwriter for soap operas. What could I do? Um, it was not obviously clear, <laughs> but I feel like when you, you know, take the first step towards making change, the, the path appears. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the next step becomes clear and then the next step and the next step. And that's continued to happen to this day that we, despite moving forward and, and listening and asking and, you know, trying to keep a humble attitude, then you see what the next thing you can do is and you do it, and that reveals the next step. That's amazing, totally. So before we dive in deeper about um, all the wonderful things the coalition does, Amanda, I want to ask you how you got involved in this. Yeah, for sure. So I always felt a need or like a desire to help women and children in India or Africa. I, I, I have no explanation for it. I just, it just has always been. And like in high school and college, I would go to look, look up, you know, volunteer trips, like, how can I help? What can I do? And it was all affiliated with a religion. And then they, they would tell me like, well, if you don't come to our church, then you can't come on this mission trip with us. And I'm like, that's, that's crazy to me. Um, also, you know, her future, we, we, we don't, um, you can believe in whatever you want to believe in. We support it. So, um, longer story short, I was involved with yoga medicine, Tiffany Krushank. I'm a yoga teacher. Um, I was in her trainings and she announced, I think we were in Thailand, I remember the day. And um, she said, I'm going to announce our new module. It's going to be in India and it's going to be half a yoga retreat and half um, like a volunteer trip. And as soon as the class was over, I was like, sign me up. Like I'm number one, I'm going. Um, So I did my first trip to India with her um, and we were in Calcutta and I actually was at Sarah's or her future coalitions. It was called made by survivors at that point. I, we actually went into some of, um, their shelters or, um, their jewelry centers 
And um, leaving that trip, it's kind of the same thing I always say, like you, you kind of go, you know, you go like, oh, I, I really want to do this, but you come home and, and it's your mission. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to, once you've seen it yourself and witnessed it, um, to come back and not, you know, just like Sarah said, not um, kind of change something you're doing in Absolutely. your own life. Um, then I didn't know, I didn't know, same thing that Sarah said, how and, and what, how am I going to continue this on? Um, so I just started connecting with people and of a friend of a friend invited me to the Nobel Peace Prize Forum. And it was um, when Malala and Kailash uh, Satyari were receiving um, the Nobel Peace Prize for, or for their work in, in Asia, you know, rescuing, rehabilitating so many women and children and, and giving them education. Um, and Sarah was on a panel. So I'm sitting in, you know, I forget where it was, Sarah. It was like Minnesota or something. Um, it was in Minneapolis. Minneapolis, yeah. And so she's talking, and um, you know, I'm just in the audience listening, and she's like, "Yeah, I, I founded Made by Survivors," and I'm like, I, "You know, I, my hand shot up. I'm like, oh my god, like I've actually been to your centers in yeah. Calcutta." And she's like, "Okay, meet me afterwards. We're talking." <laughs> um, so it was really kind of like fate. Yeah. Um, and so we chatted then, and um, we've been connected ever since. That's awesome. So it was crazy, right? It was so like synchronicity when. You know, because what, the gifts that Amanda had to offer were just what the organization needed in that moment. And obviously, like, she was also looking for a way to get more deeply involved in India. So it was crazy. Um, but I, and I rem- kind of remember the moment she shot, hand shut up, and I was like, <laughs> probably went over and like, let me give you a big hug. <laughs> did I do that? I, I'm sure you did. <laughs> but it's like what you said, Sarah, before, like, when you're on a mission to, you know, to good, it, things kind of flow mm, and fall that's, into place. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So now you guys are together and how are there other women that in the States that work for the coalition as well? Um, so we, we have, Sarah and I are full-time. We're, we're pretty a small nonprofit. Um, we have a social media manager who's in the States and, you know, works part-time. We have, um, a 12 person board, um, are all women. And then I'd say at the moment, Sarah, what do we have? Like eight female employees in India, but that will increase as we open our new center. Exactly. And we have like someone that helps us with grants and lots of amazing, you know, kind of volunteers that come in and bring their genius. Um, But we're, yeah, we try to keep our team in in the U.S. kind of small just because that way we can be very cost efficient by keeping, you know, a lot of things overseas, but also because we really believe we want to also empower the local community or not even empower them. They have, they have power. We want to give more opportunities locally as well mm-hmm. and do a lot of promoting from within the communities where we work um, so that as much as possible, our solutions are homegrown and, you know, culturally appropriate and just appropriate in every way to, to the communities that we're working in. I think that's so crucial too. So Sonali is is a great example of this. She um, came in being res- having been rescued and got her full education and was recently promoted. I think she just got promoted again and is now working for her future. And so it's this full circle, like to actually see that and see the work in action. Mm-hmm. It's, it, um, she's she's just ama- an amazing woman, and it's great to you know, to see her take on responsibility and ownership. And, um, and it's, I mean, I think we overuse the word empowered, but it's, she's empowered and yeah. it's so lovely to see. Totally. And it's, I, I feel in kind of all walks of life too, if, you know, if someone's clearly she's passionate about this because she's experienced it. Um, so let me backtrack just a bit. So you've at 15 years ago, you're at this film festival and you were like, all right, I'm changing my life. I'm not going to write songs for soap operas anymore. I'm doing something totally different. So tell us, and, um, and you guys can kind of piggyback off each other. Um, like your first trip to India, like what was next step? Were you like, okay, I got to get in touch with this person. Like how does one even begin to put something like this together? And it, yes. And people ask that a lot. And I'm always like, well, definitely one step at a time. And also don't do this if you're like afraid to make a lot of mistakes and have a lot of failures and be sort of embarrassed a lot of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Like keeping it real, like, you know what I mean? Very, very imperfect. It was very lovingly and very imperfectly done. 
Um, and I just think that maybe is the only way when you, when you first get started. Um, so it was actually about 18 years ago when I was at the film festival and the first year after, um, going to the film festival, I, what I did was as soon as I got home from the film festival, I reached out to the only anti-trafficking organizations I ever heard of, which was the ones in the film, right? Cause this was so new to me. Like mm-hmm. even the words human trafficking wasn't being used back then. I mean, people didn't know it. I didn't know what, much about it or anything. So I reached out to those organizations in the film and um, they were in India and Nepal, both sides of the equation. And this group in Nepal actually wrote back to me and more synchronicity. Um, they were like, well, you know, um, if you, you know, if you possibly live anywhere near, we do have a couple volunteers in the U S and maybe you could just work with them. Um, do you live anywhere near Boston? And I was like, Oh my God, I'm a Cape Cod, <laughs> yeah. which is like 45 minutes away. And, you know, I'm sure like thinking about America, it's like so big. It could have been anywhere that they were they were in Boston. So it was amazing. And I was able to volunteer at that organization for a year and just learn so much from them about the cause. And meanwhile, just reading, reading, getting on the internet, just trying to, you know, get, get, not be so ignorant um, as Mm -hmm. I was at the beginning. And at the end of the year, um, the, the organization I was volunteering with was like, Hey, we're going to Kathmandu. We're going to go to the shelter. There was about 600 survivors. It was, was, and is one of the biggest ones. It's called 19 Nepal. And uh, did you do you want to come and see you know see what we've all been working on all year? And I was immediately went to say no because you know I can't do that. I have little kids, whatever. Um, my kids were very small, like two and three, mm-hmm. three and four. And um, and then I was like, wait, maybe I can do this. Um, yeah, I'm going to go. And um, my my husband and aunt helped me, and I was able to go over. And that again just deep and even more my my conviction about doing this just meeting these girls who've just been rescued with a lot of them had little babies and and just you know seeing the difference between girls who've just been rescued with their trauma and anguish written all over their bodies and written all over their faces and girls who've been at this shelter home for you know a year or more and just the the hopefulness that had returned to them mm-hmm. the resilience the joy um it was it was nothing I've ever seen before. And, and I still haven't seen joy like that other than in places like that. Mm -hmm. Um, just this incredible joy that I am free and I can, you know, whatever else happens, I am free and the sky is above me and the earth is beneath me. And I, I saw that and I, at a deep heart level wanted more of that, um, and wanted to create more of that or help more of that along and feel more of that. So that, um, and that trip, I got the idea um, for trying to cre- uh, create employment opportunities for girls by selling the products that they made, where they were making products in the shelter homes, but there were really no markets for them locally. And that was you know, the, the germ of what became her future coalition. Originally, it was called Made by Survivors because it's products made by survivors. Um, and so we started with those you know, vocational and employment types of projects in 2005. And... Um, started just selling the products at home parties in my community. And then it spread, you know, kind of nationally. Um, then we went online and then, you know, over the each year kind of new, new opportunities and needs became revealed to us. Um, we went to, I went to India for the first time in 2006 and in Calcutta is where things really, I don't know, took root and started to just, flourish um, for the organization in different ways. And that's where we you know, started to build shelters, to develop education programs, and to continue with vocational um, and employment programs as well for older girls. And, Sarah, and let's, those are kind of the three pillars that we still have to this day. Let's jump in and, and give everyone some context on like why India, why Calcutta, and what is trafficking? Because I think um, when I'm talking to people, you know, the movie Taken, everyone like assumes it's that, um, and, and, or only sex slavery or sexual exploitation. And there's a lot of other forms of slavery as well. Um, so child marriage, um, we see this so often and, um, that means, I don't know, Sarah, how, how young do they get married in a child marriage? And is this a sale? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, for, for child marriage, it kind of, it takes a lot of different shapes. And in some cases it's 
to prevent trafficking. You know, it's kind of ironic, but it is itself a form of, of slavery. And, you know, in some countries as young as kids, as young as eight, nine Jesus. in India, it tends to be more a uh, little older, like, you know, 12 and up 12 to 14 year olds. Um, and so sometimes they're so getting, sometimes, yeah, you know, the families themselves are getting tricked into, you know, giving the traffickers a, a daughter or a son. Um, and sometimes they, they are doing it out of absolute necessity where they, they need to make a sale. Um, a lot of times they're lied to though. Like we're going to take her into, you know, the big city, they'll go into the villages and they'll say, you know, we're going to take her to the big city and she'll be, um, you know, she'll be a, a maid in someone's house and we'll send money back to you. And, um, you know, that's it's so easy to believe when you're in a desperate, desperate yeah. situation. Um, and then a lot of times, you know, they'll never, they'll never see their child again. Mm, it's devastating. And, and, so, and also sometimes it's like a, a, you know, a boyfriend or a husband who like someone who either, you know, comes to the village, romances them, they get married and then they go off with this guy and then he sells them and immediately goes back and does it in another village. Mm. And now a word from our sponsor. Looking to buy or sell in the Charleston area? We got you. You got to check out my girl, Audra Walters from Front Porch Properties. Audra works with both buyers and sellers, but what sets her apart from other agents is she will stage your listing for free, zero dollars. There is no charge to the sellers. This helps tremendously, especially if you are selling a rental or a second home that has no furniture or hasn't been loved in years. It also helps if you live in the house and have a large brown ugly leather couch. She can fix it. Staging homes to sell for more money and more quickly. So why not sell with Audra? There's more. She offers free 3D virtual tours and drone videos with all her listings. It is key to get your home on social media and Audra rocks that out. You can find Audra on Instagram at Audra underscore Walters underscore CHS or frontporchpropertiessc.com. You can also always find her in my classes, turning on the freaking fans, Audra. <laughs> so check her out today. She's an awesome woman and she is super motivated. Is this the, is the business like a big business there because it makes a lot of money for the people or trafficking? He, the sale of human life is the third largest like black market. So I think the first is um, drugs, the second is firearms, and the third is is Humans. human life. Yeah, mm -hmm. and definitely has its roots in poverty and mm -hmm. desperation in the and in the low status of women and girls. Um, in a lot, in a lot of cases, in these communities, the low, you know, the sort of lowest person is a young girl, and that's just that's just the reality. But I think the you mentioned the movie Taken, um, Amanda, and I think one thing I will say out of like thousands of survivors we worked with, nobody was abducted, um, mm -hmm. nobody was snatched off the street by strangers, um, or you know, whatever that was. I, most of it's always you know involved with people that you know. Um, relatives, landlords, community members, or family members. And as Amanda said, it, you know, there are parents that know what they're doing, you know, that's become so normalized in the community. But in most cases, it's not that. It's parents who either it's life endangering to keep their daughter at home because they're, they're starving or they're sold a story that she's going to be working as a maid or, she, you know, he's going to be, he's going to have a good job and send money home. And in fact, you know, ends up being, they never see their child again and their child was just wrapped up into this criminal industry. And then some people go, you know, they go of their own choice. They, they migrate looking for work and very young people like 12, 13, you know, seeing the need of their family, like, okay, I'll go, I'll go to Delhi and I'll work as a maid or whatever. And when they're there, of course, cut off from all their support systems, they're incredibly vulnerable and so easy for them to then, then be, you know, tricked, trafficked, coerced, betrayed. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned men are boys as well. So it's not just women. It's young men, young boys as well. Yeah. Like the UN estimates that there's 40 million people who are living in slavery conditions. That does not include, you know, abusive labor that it just outright, you know, people that are enslaved. That includes labor trafficking in certain industries like brick making and mines. It's a particularly big issue. I think, you know, there's actually a great movie, the Blood Diamonds movie that kind of explores that with the mining and the conflict minerals. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also people working in other people's homes. It's domestic work, um, child soldiers, child marriage, and sex trafficking. 
and about they estimate um, the obviously they're just estimates because it's the criminal industry. It's completely you know underground, but they estimate that about 70 percent of trafficking victims worldwide are women and girls. Um, but it definitely includes you know men, women, boys, and girls. So. Um can you, and I know Amanda's kind of shared, one of you, um, Amanda shared this with me a little bit, but maybe what it's like for one of these young girls, you know, once they get sold into this, how how it plays out and what, you know, what it's like for them on a day-to-day or how that works. Um, last year, I had the great honor of writing a book with one of the girls that we've worked with for many years. Her name is Anjali. And... Um, she, she, you know, she shared her story in that. So I'll, I'll tell you that story, but she was 11 years old. Her father had passed away, which, you know, is a common vulnerability when a parent has died. Um, and mother had some mental issues and the family was desperately poor. And in, she lived in one of those communities where trafficking has become very normalized and every household has multiple girls or women who've been trafficked. So finally, you know, for lack of any other options, she, she decided at the age of 11 that she would go and work in India, not knowing what work was or even knowing really much about what sex was. Um, and so they, some uncles or relatives took her over to India. She was passed through like about not 11 people, you know, that go passed through a lot of hands before she finally ended up, um, in Kolkata in the red light area there. And they, um, waited until she started her period that kind of like fattened her up really for lack of a better term, um, fed her and, you know, kind of kept her for some months until her period started. Um, that was kind of what they felt was the appropriate time. And so when she was maybe 11 and a half or almost 12, um, then she, she still didn't know, you know, what was happening. Yeah. There was Um, no, she had no information. She was just like stuck in this apartment for months. And why did they wait for them to start their period? Just so they're more of a woman. You know, who who knows? They don't always. But you know, I think that um, particular group of traffickers like sort of felt like maybe that was their the ethical cutoff. Oh, yeah. um, um, and they felt like you know it's not a child. I think that it's not a, you know pedophiles. It's not a child if she has her period. Um, but obviously, you know, an eleven year old. These are tiny and so small. Like it, it still would be to us. It would you know, any normal person would look very much and would, anyone would say it was a child. But for them, I think they felt like if you've got your period, then it's okay. You're a woman. Um, so she had her period just a couple weeks and then, you know, they took her to this brothel and she, that first night, she still did not know what was going to happen. Um, and no, no one said anything. And then, and finally, you know, a, a man came in and chose her, you know, they would sort of line them up and um, a man, man chose her and another girl, said, go in the room with him and just do what he says. And, you know, obviously she was, she was raped then. And then the next night, 10 men, Mm. um, and just, you know, the, the violence is, is obviously indescribable, um, the pain and humiliation and shock. And, you know, she, she just was like, I want to go home. I want to go home. And, And they said, well, if you just do this and you get good at this and you bring us a lot of money, then you can go home. And that was the, that was the carrot that they kind of held out for her. Um, and for about a year, she believed that and just went along with it. And then it just kind of became like just survival. You know, how do you stay alive as you keep these people happy? How do you keep them happy as you take care of these men? Um, and a lot of girls like her, you know, they have a, even when they're rescued have a really hard time um, talking about it because they didn't have the words for the, for what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're so little and they, you know, don't have a lot of awareness of life. And so to even talk about physically what happened or emotionally what was going on. Um, and she says, you just kind of, you, you disappear, you make yourself disappear. You just not there. You make yourself not exist. Um, and you think lots of girls say that think things like I wasn't there. I died. I died there. I wasn't there. It didn't happen to me um, as a way of surviving. It's completely cut off um, the like, connection with their body. And, and sometimes that lasts for years where they actually can't even feel certain parts of their body. And Sarah, sometimes too, um, you're bringing maybe someone from Nepal over to India and there's so many different languages. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes they'll be somewhere and, and 
no one can speak their language. And so they really have no idea um, what's happening. It's just so terrible. And they, exactly. And, they, and they, they, how would they escape? Like, what, where would they escape? They don't speak the language. Um, and that is one of the ways that's keep, you know, kind of makes it easy to manipulate them. Um, because, and, and then they see the police coming. The police came to that brothel where she was every night. And, you know, they choose a different girl. They take money. So where are you going to run to? Right. You know, no one speaks the language. Um, they weren't really allowed outside very much. They maybe could go to the corner store, but all of those people were, were complicit and involved in this industry that really the entire community is wrapped around. Um, so in her case, you know, finally uh, there was a rescue raid and she was rescued along with 19 other girls who all came from the same small tribal community in Nepal as she did. And did these girls like, I mean, I'm just sitting here listening to this and did, is like, is there a high suicide rate or, or are they, are they so like young that they're just still trying to like, cause I mean, I have three young children and I, I just, I can't even, like, I can't even imagine. I cannot even imagine. I, I'm sure there's a high suicide rate. And I think a lot of that, I mean, there are 22% of child traffic children do not reach adulthood um, in India. So, you know, I think a certain number of people just would bury them, you know, try to, try to die. Mm -hmm. um, in her case, you know, she started drinking a lot um, and just, you know, trying to disappear. And I'm sh and I think some people get STDs or tuberculosis that kills them and they let it. And I'm sure some people actively kill themselves. Some people are, are murdered um, by traffickers if they, you know, if they do try to resist or try to try to escape they might be killed as you know to set an example for others so it's I think it I've, is very dire I've said this to you um when I was here but I think when I'm in India and um we do take um groups with us to India to experience parts of what we do um because while this is so dark and depressing it's it um there's really, really beautiful parts as well. Um, like Sarah mentioned before, um, you know, seeing someone come out of that kind of situation and heal and then be joyous again is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, you know, in my own life. Mm -hmm. When I'm there though, and we're, we're just, you know, right there, you can look at the brothel, you can walk through the slums. It's shocking to me that like we live on a planet where there's demand for this, right? Mm -hmm. There's demand to rape a 12 year old. And I feel like, um, that for me is just, it always kind of like grounds me and it makes me understand that like our work, yes, it's, it's saving women and children and empowering them and educating them. But we are actually changing a deeply ingrained belief mm -hmm. that women are less than. And that I hope, or I think is, it has a ripple out effect. And so, you know, it's so overwhelming. You can go there and there's millions of people in India and, um, you, you know, like Sarah said, how am I going to help? Like there, you, you, a lot of times on these trips, women feel like that. They're like, Oh my God, what am, what am I going to do? Um, and, and I always say, like, I don't, you know, I won't see a shift in my life. Like, I'll do this work forever. I won't see a shift in my life. But um, but we're planting a seed, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we start to educate um, more and more girls and boys, right, that this is not, women are not less than, this is not how life can, you know, should be lived, then it's like we're planting a seed. And, and it, you know, the hope is eventually that grows. So when, um, to kind of piggyback what you're speaking about, Amanda, and I think, you shared this with me, and maybe I might say it wrong, but you were saying that um, the work that you guys do is to build these shelters, and a lot of their children are there while they're at work, so they wanted a safe space. Yes. Well, okay, so I, yeah, I wanted to come back to this because I think it's it's something that I respect about Sarah and the nonprofit, and I think is really important for everyone to, to hear and to see, but um, they, you know, they, we, we don't go over there with this Western philosophy and... Or, or maybe you know, and a lot of a lot of um, nonprofits do. But um, what Sarah did was was ask them, "What do you need? Like, what the women in the brothels? Because at, at some points, they've been in there too long, or that's their only form of income." And they were saying to her, "You know, you you can't really you can't save me, but 
I have a daughter that you can. And so Sarah and her future coalition started to create these um, drop-in centers. And so when the women or the mothers would have to go to work, um, they could drop their child off in these centers. And so, which is beautiful because these children would be witnessing all the abuse that happened from a very young age, a lot of these children are born into brothels mm -hmm. and know, you know, absolutely nothing else. Um, one of the things that also shocks me when I was there is I'm like, well, surely they, you know, are on some form of birth control. Like why would a brothel owner want, you know, anyone to be pregnant? And they, they actually want you to, because then they have more control over you. Mm. Um, they know that, you know, they know the bond of a, of a mother and a child. And, and if you have a child in that you know, it's, it, they're, they're going to have more control over you. You're not going to leave. And if it's a girl, you know, they're, they have, they have income forever. And, you know, you can sell a gun once, but you can sell a woman, as Sarah said, like 20 times a night. Jeez. Um, but what we do, so yes, we have these drop-in centers, um, that, you know, w boys and girls can come anytime they need. It's a safe place. There's tutoring, um, English, and we're actually really excited about our newest project, which is going to be a huge resource learning center um, in, in Calcutta. And we'll be adding so many different um, education programs. So computer literacy and English and financial literacy, um, women's health workshops, you know, so often the women that come yoga. from... Yoga. Yoga. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> so often the women come, you know, from these this past and the only OBs that are in India are mostly men and mm -hmm. they're not going to go and, and have an exam, you know, that's impossible. So, um, you know, allowing them to have some education around this. Um, I think actually on our trip, we have, um, Kira from Charleston coming, who is a nurse at MUSC mm -hmm. and she's going to put together a, um, women's health workshop. Yep. Which we're super excited about. So good. So good. Um, so I'm, I know we spoke about this briefly, Amanda, when we were getting ready to to podcast, but can you give us some figures, some numbers of things like what, so, you know, the way that this, the coalition survives is through donations, I'm assuming mostly. Yes. Yes. So let's chat because this is important <laughs> shit, people. So pay attention to Amanda right now. <laughs> Turn it up. <laughs> well, um, Yes. I mean, we are a nonprofit and um, rely on donations um, to support our work. Um, we do we do have some working grants as well. Um, Sarah, you can talk to that a little bit more. But to make something relatable, um, I send my child to daycare every day, Monday through Friday, because I work. But I pay about $1,200 a month for that. Um, in... Our programs, you can actually send a girl to school. You can sponsor a girl for $30 for a month. Wow. And so, you know, it's, I think sometimes when, again, back to that idea of like, what can I do? That's what you can do. I mean, it's $30 a month, $360 a year to send one child to school. Um, With room and board. And also pays for like shelter, room and board. That's $360 for a year. Three hundred and sixty dollars yeah. for a year for one one child. Well, sign me up. I'm gonna get. I'm on a mission. We're Done. gonna get twenty Thank people you. today. And it also, it also pays for them. You know, those after school centers, the drop in centers in the red light area that keep the kids safe while their mom are seeing clients. It pays for that. Pays for you know food, nutritious meals, the counseling, tutoring, everything to make sure that their education is a success and you're not just throwing money away. It's like it's like a full full circle holistic support of a child. $30 a month. So that is, that is a good entry level, you know, place to start. Yep. It's amazing. Um, so I, I know that we're kind of discussing this mostly. Um, I mean, it's important, but it, India's in the news. It's, it's getting just COVID. Um, the, there's a wave two, they're thinking there's a wave three and it's, 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 um, has been shocking for us to, you know, witness this from the U.S. Um, Sarah and I have a team call with our um, team in India every Tuesday morning. And it's, I mean, Sarah and I, you and I were discussing this, but it's it's been really tough. It's been really tough. And um, I was listening to them say, like, we don't even have vaccines. And 
I'm sitting, you know, in my beautiful house and safe and I get to choose if I want a vaccine and when I want it. Mm -hmm. And like, that is privilege. Right. And these girls are like, I have goosebumps, but they're like my sisters They're And, and the fact that like, they don't, it's getting better. I mean, there's a lot of aid coming in from other countries, but, um, it's, it's always that, that strong, powerful reminder of like, wow, we do have so much privilege and we, we need to, you know, give back, but I want to give some numbers about COVID. So there was a point where they were hitting about 350,000 cases or deaths per day. Um, and you know, if you think about it, like a, maybe it's like slumdog millionaire, I think kind of shows the slums somewhat in, in a realistic form, but, um, you know, one person gets it in a family, in a house of, you know, 15 people, everyone's going to get it. Right. And so it's just been spreading and there's so much misinformation in these communities. Um, really, I mean, if you don't have access to Wi-Fi, you don't read the newspaper, you know, you're only going to have word of mouth and, the word of mouth that that they're getting is that, you know, the vaccine is bad or if you go to the hospital, you're going to die. So a lot of these community members were masking um, their symptoms because they they didn't want to go get help. And and so it's just been it's been taking over. But our community um, has her future coalitions community has um, raised forty thousand dollars in the last few weeks, amazing. which is amazing. Yes, and as you know, um, money in India are you know U.S. dollars in India can can really affect a lot positively. So we were able to um, feed twelve hundred women and girls. So we did like emergency food distribution, and they got little packets of rice, lentils, eggs oil, potatoes, and that would sustain um, a person for a month. Um, we, her future, paid for a healthcare worker to visit hunt, like hundreds of families in these communities and um, provide the correct information just to essentially check on them, make sure them they're okay. And then we did basic medical kits, which included sanitizer, a thermometer, Tylenol, and medical-grade masks. Um you know, so I think we talked about this before, but there's the UN is saying that 20 million girls that have been pushed out of school during COVID will will actually not return to school, and um, we're we're really dedicated to long term um, solutions, and that that's why we believe in education. But we get we got to make sure the girls get there, right? And so we have been shifting to ensure that we can we can get our girls to this to the other side and benefit from those long-term solutions. So everyone's been shifting, but we also provided data cards um, so that for 275 children so that they could, you know, jump on their mom's cell phone and talk to a teacher or a tutor or turn in an assignment and somewhat continue on this educational path. We um, got 65 girls tablets for online learning. Um, and then this $40,000 also paid the salaries of teachers, tutors, and all of the girls in our vocational programs. A lot of times, actually through the last year and a half, they haven't been able to work. India has been in a really strict lockdown. They're still in lockdown. Their schools are still closed. Um, and so we've continued to pay to pay the salaries of, of all of those girls. So $40,000, you know, affects let's say 1200 people, but then think about, you know, who that's affecting. And who that's like you said, out. like that ripple effect. Absolutely. That's amazing. And, um, yeah. it really, it really is. Um, so right now, these are just like questions I'm thinking about just our listeners listening and maybe just some questions they, like I can think of, maybe they would ask, but so do the women that are in brothels, do they go to school during the day or is or not usually? No, the women that are currently like trafficked in brothels do not go to school during the day. So we, uh, you know, focus on people who've been rescued and are in Got it. a rescue shelter Okay. or the children of women who are in brothels and trying to make sure that they don't get into second generation prostitution, which without, which they surely would without some intervention. Right. Um, and so, our, yeah, we work with sort of a, about, you know, half, they'd say half or something, roughly half of the people we work with are survivors who have experienced severe gender-based violence and maybe half were like prevention cases, like the younger girls in Anjali's village, you know, she's actually gone back to that village and is opening a school because, you know, I went there last month and you walked around the village and every house, she was like, that's the, the sister, oh, the three daughters, the mother and the aunt. 
everyone, every house was affected. Every house Mm -hmm. had multiple girls that were missing. If she wants to change that, we want to support that. So we we definitely work in in a lot of communities like that, tribal communities like hers, low, you know, low caste, untouchable communities, border towns, red light areas and places to make sure that people don't get trafficked. And then, and then in some cases, you know, people where people have already been trafficked, trying to help them rebuild their lives to save them and their future children. Mm-hmm. And when you guys are over there, do you see like the, the centers that you've set up or do the people that are owning the brothels, are they upset that you're there to try and help or do they kind of just mind their own hiding? Oh, in their- it's, you get sometimes they get, you know, you get, you get some dark looks. I think there's, um, it would be very dangerous to work in those communities without having a deep root in the local community. So mm-hmm. like before we would try to open something like that, you have to develop like trusted advocates from within the red light community um, who became, you know, kind of become the protectors of the center and, and of us. Um, and I definitely have run across traffickers and it's scary. Um, but I think that since we aren't, you know, we're not, we're not the police, we're not arresting them. We're not, trying to prosecute them or bring cases against them. There are people that do that very important work, but our work is, our work is about, you know, rebuilding lives. Um, yeah. I mean, we're not actually so, doing the raids right. or the rescues. Right. Yeah. We're not doing the raids. And so that maybe, maybe that's why, and they also know like, we're not going to, you know, we're not the police, you know, we're not there to arrest them. So they, they kind of tolerate us. Um, certainly when I was in Anjali's village, um, I, ran and we ran into some traffickers and there are actually some people that had trafficked her mm. and it was scary. And we, we made a hasty departure through like a, a goat shed. Um, but that, that kind of situation is quite rare um, because generally, you know, we sort of have something set up and we're working there and they, they tolerate us. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is amazing. I mean, it's both of you guys and everything you're doing is really, really amazing. And well, hopefully in February, I know. What are we thinking? I, I mean, Sarah and I still feel pretty confident. Um, I mean, it's nine months away. Mm-hmm. And um, for anyone listening, we do um, these immersion trips. We try to do it once a year. And um, anyone who wants to join absolutely can. There's obviously a minimum um, donation. But we all go over there as a group. And, you know, what I've seen has changed my life. And and, and we want to give that experience to other people. Um so you can also come on a trip. Sarah is signed up to come with us in February. Sarah from The Works um, and a few of your friends. Yep. But um, we, we do a deep dive. We um, learn about trafficking and um, the issue in general. You'll meet survivors, hear their stories. Um, we go to Indian markets and we shop and we walk through the slum communities and we eat the food and we most importantly, connect with the girls. Everyone always says like, you know, we're not going to go there and build a toilet. I don't know how to build a toilet. Right. Um, and everyone's like, well, what's, you know, what's the mission? What am I doing? What's the action I'm doing when I'm there? And I'm like, the action is to witness and to connect. And it's, it's always a reminder when they're there. Um, Sarah Simmons, you'll remember this, but um, the last group we took, which was February 2020, right before COVID hit. Um, so there's like 20, you know, Western white women, and then uh, let's say it again, 20 Indian women. And, and there's so many barriers, right? There's every time I'm there, someone's like, are you in a love marriage or a set up, you know, mm-hmm. a, an arranged marriage? You're and like, I'm, like mm, oh. I'm trying to figure it out right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get out of it. Yeah. I'm trying to get out of either, either way. <laughs> um, but we were sitting on this rooftop of a vo- the vocational center and we were all just, you know, sitting Indian style and talking with each other and laughing so hard. And, you know, you'd think that you'd be up there and, and it sounds so intense, like to be disconnected from it. But we got into this conversation of like what annoys us about our partners and you know, they were annoyed too, that like the shoes didn't go in the basket mm-hmm. or, you know, and it's, it's that, it's like that beauty of connection. We're all just the same in different places. And, um, that is the most beautiful part of the trip is connecting with these women. Um, and knowing that you're, you know, for them to know somewhere else in the world, people care, I think it's really important. Yeah. And there's so many things. I love it. Go ahead, Sarah. I was going to say, I love the way you said that. And I think, you know, obviously like going over for two weeks, you're, you're like, how am I going to, you know, what difference does it make or how am I going to change someone's life? And 
the answer is it is through the long term, right? So we're hoping that through these trips, you'll you'll feel connected with our staff, with the girls, with our projects, and with us, and want to and want to take it to the next level and mm-hmm. want to you know invest invest more time and energy in it as you know as as we have and as so many people have, and that 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 kind of keeps it going. Mm-hmm. But even if you just go once, you bear witness and you go home and you tell ten people. Um, that's incredibly powerful. And, and that is how our work gets supported, you know, and as Amanda said, it's powerful for our girls to see that, you know, they are supported by a sisterhood and a brotherhood of people all over the world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this has been awesome. I'm just trying to digest everything. I'm sure I'm going to get off of this and think about a million questions, but I can always harass Amanda about that. Um, so what for our listeners, like what's the best way for them to help today? Um, you know, it's always going to be a donation. Yeah. So our website is herfuturecoalition.org. Um, we're on Instagram. I don't, you know, never underestimate the power of sharing one of our posts, communicating with our posts. Um, and uh, yeah, donations, a one-time donation, a monthly donation, sponsor a child, reach out to me. It's Amanda at herfuturecoalition.org. Um, throw a fundraiser, come to India with us. Yeah. Um, there's, there's tons of options. Um, the website will give you even more. Yes. Awesome. And I know that Amanda and I have already started kind of talking about a class that we want to do and to raise some money. And, um, I hopefully in February, Maggie will, who's from the studio for those of you that know Maggie at Austin, she'll be going with us and we're going to be doing some fundraising stuff for her as well. So I'm really, I'm so excited. And I think, thank you guys so much for taking the time. I think this is just, I have chills all over my body. I'm going to India. <laughs> and then, um, I asked a few of my other girls and I know we're all really looking forward to learning and being part of this. So thank you. Oh, for sure. We're so excited to have you guys. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much, Sarah. I am very excited to have you be part of our, our sisterhood and our family. I, you know, I feel like I've kind of moved my own uh, vision away from like fixing things and, and, you know, into just creating kinship, Mm -hmm. creating, you know, a a family around these girls, a family circle of support. And I feel like through doing that, it will fix things and it will solve things. And so you've, I hear in your voice and, and what you're already doing that you you've joined that kinship uh, circle. And I'm really, really excited to be in it with you and see what change we can create together and want to invite everyone on this call to join it and also partner with us and, and help to create beautiful, beautiful stories. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. I'm, I'm really, really excited. So I want to, I want to just throw in on Anjali's quote, cause I think it's, it's really beautiful, but, um, she is who Sarah talked about, um, wrote the book about, and is now an advocate. But Anjali said, you know, I can't, I can't change my story. My story is my story, but I can use the same words and write a new one. Yeah. And um, I think all of us together, everything we do is, is helping her do that. I love it. So good. Thank you guys so much. And um, thank you to our listeners. Please, please, please share this with all of your people. And like Amanda was saying, you know, a one-time donation, a yearly, a monthly, whatever it is, it's nothing is ever, you know, even if it's $10, like everything adds up. So please share with your people and, um, you know, give what you can and just pass on the love. As always, if you liked this podcast, if you didn't, you have problems. But if you did like this podcast, please rate us, review us and check us out next week. Thank you guys. Thank you.